This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind in the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, days of fire. Have a listen to the news this week. A president re-elected convincingly a year ago is under fire. His signature program, the Affordable Care Act, is mired in startup challenges and his polling numbers are feeling the effects. Eight years ago, similar circumstances. George W. Bush and his vice president Dick Cheney rolled to a second term, but the first pivotal year of his reset, 2005, was no stroll down Pennsylvania Avenue. There was a deteriorating relationship with Vladimir Putin. First one, then two vacancies on the Supreme Court. The investigation of the leaking of the identity of a CIA analyst. Growing anger over the war in Iraq and shock. Shock that the intelligence community might be using its technology to intercept phone calls on U.S. soil. And they say being president could be a fun job. Peter Baker covers President Obama as he did President Bush, and while the first draft of history isn't yet finished for the 44th president, it is with his predecessor, and it covers 658 pages, not including notes from our first guest just out from Doubleday. Then they slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. Those were Ronald Reagan's words when he shared news of the deaths of the seven space shuttle astronauts on January 28, 1986. The Science Channel Tonight airs The Challenger Disaster, a new film starring William Hurt as Dr. Richard Feynman, the -the behind-the-scenes story of how one man bucked the system and sought the truth behind the tragedy. We'll talk to the film's executive producer, Rocky Collins, and its director, James Haas, at the bottom of the hour. But first, here in Washington, it's Peter Baker, author of Days of Fire. Peter, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. These are really days of fire for President Obama, aren't they, yeah, this week? Yeah, they are. There's something kind of haunting about a fifth year of a presidency, obviously. And and while you don't want to make the comparisons too too strong between what happened to President Bush in his fifth year and what's happening with President Obama in his, uh, there are some similarities that are haunting and I think uh, perhaps instructive for, uh, for this White House as well as uh, the rest of us in Washington. Uh, it was a rough year in 2005, and I want to go back and revisit it in great detail. Let's start, Peter, with um, uh, end of 2004 and so many of the conversations and articles you've had about your book so far about the beginning of the Bush-Cheney relationship and the very end with Scooter Libby. But uh, if you look at smack in the middle of 2005 and you think about Bush and Cheney after their defeat of Kerry and Edwards in 2004... Bush had great ambitions for his second term. I want to hear a little bit of, uh, of his second inaugural address. And then there came a day of fire. We have seen our vulnerability, and we have seen its deepest source. For as long as whole regions of the world simmer in resentment and tyranny, prone to ideologies that feed hatred and excuse murder, Violence will gather and multiply in destructive power and cross the most offended borders and raise a mortal threat. Uh, President Bush talked to Michael Gerson, had great ambitions for what he would do with the political capital that he'd earned. Yeah, he said he wanted to stake a flag uh, for freedom, basically, in his second inaugural address. And by that, he meant he wanted to transform the war on terror from something that was purely, uh, you know, about... uh, 
uh, killing bad guys, in effect, to something a little bit more positive and, and affirming, which is the idea of spreading freedom, democracy around the world, that he saw that as a connected to the conditions that lead to terrorism and that America could be a, a, a leader around the world. And he, and, he, and he drafted an address with Michael Gerson that went further than any president had ever gone before in linking American policy, not just aspirations, uh, to this idea of democracy. Not really a speech that Dick Cheney might have given, maybe a little bit of an overreach that they were thinking in the uh, vice president's office? Yeah, Cheney had very little to do with it. Uh, Cheney had very little to do with it. I asked him about it. He says, I didn't have much to do with that speech at all. And it isn't his cup of tea. He is a uh, a conservative rather than a neoconservative. He didn't really buy much into this idea of a democracy promotion. He thought it was fine. He wasn't against democracy, but his view of foreign policy was it was more about national interests. His aide, John Hanna, described uh, Cheney to me as an American nationalist, and that was the way he saw foreign policy. So he didn't object to President Bush uh, pursuing this line of, uh, of, of rhetoric, but it wasn't his priority. Presidents are often fixated at the end of their first terms if they've got another chance and thinking about uh, what the makeup of their cabinet is going to be for a second term and what their staff is going to be. And there was certainly this great article out at the beginning of uh, Politico magazine this week by Glenn Thrush about the Obama cabinet. But thinking back to late 04 and early 05, what was President Bush and Cheney wrestling with about major transition moves they might have. Yeah, exactly. I think Glenn's piece in, in Politico magazine, and I'm biased about the, the new magazine there, but uh, uh, I think it, in fact, ca- encapsulates the dynamics of what a cabinet life is like these days under presidents when the White House is so in charge of things. And in, in the Bush's case, you had a cabinet that was kind of a team of rivals. You had Colin Powell, who clearly didn't click with Donald Rumsfeld and, and Chick Cheney, and to some extent, even the president. Powell offered to step down, and the president was more than happy to take him up on it. But in his place, uh, uh, he elevates Condoleezza Rice, and in doing that, sets the whole uh, stage for a very different second term, uh, and one that, in fact, Cheney was going to find much more frustrating. Let's hear a little bit of Condi Rice and her announcement in the Oval Office. I'm pleased to announce my nomination of Dr. Condoleezza Rice to be America's Secretary of State. Condi Rice is already known to all Americans, and to much of the world. During the last four years, I've relied on her counsel, benefited from her great experience, and appreciated her sound and steady judgment. And now I'm honored that she has agreed to serve in my cabinet. Secretary of State is America's face to the world. And in Dr. Rice, the world will see the strength, the grace, and the decency of our country. Peter Baker, the transformation of a woman who really had no life, as she, uh, as you describe in your book, who was a consummate... Her friends st- describe that, just to be okay. clear. <laughs> right, but the way you describe her, yeah. uh, uh, who, who was a facilitator as national security advisor, now a principal. Transformation of her style and, and her need to put her imprint on state and the way she... Pr- uh, comported herself as secretary? Yeah, it is a transformation for her. She uh, suddenly is a peer now to Rumsfeld and to some extent Cheney and the other cabinet secretary. She's no longer just sort of a staff person. She is empowered uh, to to begin setting a direction for the presidency. And she's she's has the benefit of 
a great relationship of trust and uh, closeness with President Bush that nobody else in that administration really had. Cheney was the was the most influential vice president we'd seen in history, but he didn't pal around with the president. As he told me in an interview for this book, Days of Fire, he says, we weren't buddies. But Condoleezza Rice was buddies with President Bush. They worked out together, talked sports together. She went to the mansion for dinner on Sunday nights with she the president and first lady. referred to herself as my husband. She, she did at one point catch herself during a dinner party. She denies it, but in any case, it's sort of people heard it, and it's uh, it suggested a certain closeness. Nobody thinks anything untoward, but really a, a really brother-sister uh, kind of closeness, and she had devoted her life uh, to this. She told one colleague that she couldn't think uh, of, of more than a number of hands, a number of fingers on one hand, the number of days she hadn't talked to President Bush in the last few years. That was Christy Whitman. And then, obviously, presidents get right back into their rhythm. And the last time you were on our show, we were talking about this strange uh, incident in which President Obama the White House cancels for the first time a meeting with Vladimir Putin. But you talk about President Bush had 28 meetings over the course of his eight years with Vladimir Putin. One of them happens in early 2005. It's in Bratislava. Let's hear a little bit of the news coverage from that day. The advance of freedom is the concentrated work of generations. It took almost a decade after the Velvet Revolution for democracy to fully take root in this country. And the democratic revolutions that swept this region over 15 years ago are now reaching Georgia and Ukraine. That decision may not have gone down so well in President Bush's meeting with the Russian leader. I reaffirm my belief that, if, uh, that it is a democracy and freedom that bring true security and prosperity in every land. We may not always agree with each other, and we haven't over the last four years, that's for certain. I believe that a lot of people will, will agree with me. The implementation of the principles and norms of democracy should not be accompanied by the collapse of the state and the impoverishment of the people. Peter Baker, you were uh, Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times, covering Vladimir Putin so closely for many years. And that visit to Bratislava has so many weird elements to it. You have Vladimir Putin suggesting that President Bush fired Dan Rather. What right. about the relationship and the way they communicated and the way Bush had to sort of school Putin about realities of the way the American process works. They were really on different wavelengths here. And in fact, uh, Bush later emerges from this meeting and tells a colleague, it's like arguing with an eighth grader who's got his facts wrong. He's very frustrated by Putin. He thinks Putin is misled. Uh, he attributes to the people around Putin rather than to Putin himself. But in fact, I think that kind of misjudges Putin. Putin, in fact, is this former KGB person who has a very uh, 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 jaundiced view of the world and jaundiced view of the United States. He does say to him in this, look, don't lecture me in effect. He's saying about the press because you fired Dan rather and he says push says well that's just you know that's just not how it works you shouldn't say that because you're going to expose how little you understand about our system rather of course he got in trouble for the uh, reports about Bush's National Guard uh, service that turned to be ba out to be based on false documents and he did uh, eventually leave CBS under a cloud but that wasn't obviously because President Bush had got him fired so Putin uses these kind of false equivalences to kind of deflect and uh, parry Bush anytime he pressures him about democracy and Putin is also concerned he thinks that America may be exporting bad chicken legs to he Russia. Does. Yeah, he says, you know, I'm convinced that you have, uh, I know that you have different factories for, you know, good chicken for you and bad chicken that you send to us. And, you know, again, it sort of exemplifies this sort of uh, warped view of, of the United States that they have there. This view of George W. Bush as a uh, 
a, a very thoughtful president, a strategic president, a president who was trying to really push his agenda with Putin uh, and his freedom agenda that he ta- worked with on Ger- with Gerson on the inaugural address, comes through with sort of a bold decision to go visit Tbilisi, Georgia. And I want to hear a little bit of a news conference that happened after his crowd speech and talk about why that was a, a pretty uh, difficult day for President Bush. A hand grenade was tossed in the general direction of the main stage and landed within 100 feet from the podium. From initial qualified inspection, this hand grenade appears to be a live device that simply failed to function due to a light strike on the blasting cap induced by a slow deployment of the spoon activation device. We consider this act to be a threat against the health and welfare of both the President of the United States and the President of Georgia, as well as the multitude of Georgian people that had turned out at this event. A live hand grenade. You know, eight years we forget about about the jeopardy that the president was in, and and even going to Georgia really soured his relationship with Putin. What's he thinking strategically about taking on Russia by making this move to Tbilisi? Well, he's ex- he wants to sort of ratify and 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 underscore his support for Mikhail Saakashvili, who was the uh, young uh, uh, protester who ended up uh, pushing out a calcified regime in Georgia and very pro-Western when he becomes president, wants to be part of NATO, wants to be close to Bush in the United States. Under pressure from Moscow, Putin, who doesn't like the idea of a neighbor uh, aligning himself, aligning itself with the West, so Bush is going there to show his support. But yes, there's this episode with the with the grenade. I was there. I didn't see the grenade be thrown. It was it, nobody did. It was really a very odd thing where we all learned about it later, and it obviously could have had uh, terrible repercussions if it hadn't uh, uh, malfunctioned the way it did. Um, later on in the year, you have uh, or, or leading into the year, Peter Baker, author of Days of Fire. You have Bush and Cheney recognizing that it's the beginning of the second term. You're likely going to have uh, vacancies on the Supreme Court. What's the dynamic with uh, Bush and reaching out to Vice President Cheney, a non-lawyer, to lead the vetting process of potential vacancies? Right. Well, this is, of course, how Cheney uh, has been so successfully influential. He he does take on assignments like, in this case, vetting possible Supreme Court justices. And he, and he presents Bush with a number of uh, different candidates for the first one, including John Roberts. Robert's not actually Cheney's choice. Cheney's choice is Michael Ludig, a, a, a judge on the Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals down in Richmond. Bush goes with Roberts for for Chief Justice, but then he he he, he veers away from Cheney and he decides for the second slot that's open, Sandra Day O'Connor's slot, he's going to go with Harriet Myers, his personal lawyer from Texas and his White House counsel. Something that completely uh, is not on Cheney's radar screen and something he disagrees with. Now my duty to select a nominee to fill the seat that will be left vacant by the retirement of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Once again, I considered a wide variety of distinguished Americans from different walks of life. Once again, we consulted with Democrats and Republicans in the United States Senate. We received good advice from more than 80 senators. And once again, one person stood out as exceptionally well-suited to sit on the highest court of our nation. This morning, I'm proud to announce that I'm nominating Harriet Ellen Myers to serve as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Peter Baker, uh, 
eight years ago seems like an eternity, and yet it's not that long ago. And the wisdom of looking to your White House counsel, who did not have the the public presence, the ability to deal with the murder boards the way that John Roberts so confidently did, the way he, Roberts crammed and and blew away uh, the senators with whom he met up on the Hill. What was Bush thinking that he put his friend Myers into this difficult position? Well, it's about how Bush trusts his inner circle. He again and again through his presidency turns the people he has around him and trusts the most. He trusts Harriet Myers. He knows she's a conservative. He knows she's a smart lawyer. And he thinks, therefore, everybody else ought to accept that judgment that he has. And they don't. Uh, And there's a conservative uproar among activists who say, who the heck is she? She's not one of our our favorites. And more importantly, as you say, though, it becomes the the, the grilling by White House lawyers. They go to get her ready for these Senate hearings and discover how little she really understands about the issues that are going to confront her. Fourth Amendment search and seizure, Fifth Amendment self-incrimination. She just didn't understand it and would be crucified by the Senate. Understandably, she was a corporate lawyer, not a constitutional scholar, but she didn't have enough time to kind of get up to speed. And they went to the Bush uh, people and said, look, this is going to be a disaster if you go forward. And how does Bush or Dan Bartlett or the the members of the team break it to Harriet Myers? Well, it's kind of us through, through intermediaries. Bush uh, um, has an Andy Card, basically the chief of staff, go tell her. She doesn't really get the message the first time he goes to tell her. Finally, Bill Kelly, her deputy, goes to tell her much more bluntly, you have to withdraw. And she recoils and resists at first. But then she thinks about it, basically, and finally t- realizes that the reason that he's there to tell her that is because the president wants him to, but doesn't want to say it himself. He's very close to her. He's very pained by this. Uh, she she falls on the sword and calls him and tells him she's going to withdraw. Peter, we've been talking through 2005, having so much fun, and yet we're only really halfway through the year. We haven't even hit Hurricane Katrina yet. One of the most pivotal turning points and very much a corollary to what President Obama is facing now. I know you've got to get to a, a kid teacher conference, and I want you to go and, and make that because Polyoptics is very much a family show. But maybe we'll get you on the phone in a few minutes and resume the conversation. That would be great. I'd like to do that. People of the United States, this is POTUS. As promised, we're back with Peter Baker, the author of Days of Fire. And first, I have to ask, Peter, uh, how did the uh, parent-teacher conference go? (laughs) I went very well. Thanks for asking. I appreciate it. (laughs) Glad all is well at school. Uh, We are, you know, we've been having this conversation about 2005 because it's such a corollary to 2013 and what Barack Obama is facing. And uh, in 2005, there were... uh, there was a, a growing problem in that uh, Karl Rove found himself at the middle of the Valerie Plame case. And here is uh, Press Secretary Scott McClellan really being put on the spot in one of his White House briefings. The president's made it clear that he wants to get to the bottom of this investigation. It is ongoing. The best way we can help the investigation proceed forward is not to comment on it, on it here from this podium. We'll be glad to talk about it once the investigation has come to a conclusion. And we look forward to that uh, that time once it does. But going to the workings of the White House, you said that there is an extensive White House staff that can take up the issues. Is the suggestion that Karl Rove is less and less engaged and less able to perform his duties? No, I didn't say that at all, did I? What are you saying then? Is Karl Rove fully engaged and is this White House I just said he's continuing to do his duties. Peter Baker, this issue brought together Scooter Libby, Dick Cheney, George Bush, uh, Karl Rove, and it sort of puts Scott McClellan in the middle. What was the press secretary having to deal with that summer? 
Well, it was a, it was a miserable time for him. Uh, the, the, the prosecutors were uh, investigating whether Carl Rove or anyone else in the White House had illegally leaked the name of Valerie Plame. She was the CIA officer whose husband, Joe Wilson, was a prominent critic of the administration's use of intelligence prior to the Iraq War. And, uh, you know, McClellan, as the press secretary, was forced to go out there and basically uh, – make statements that he later believed to be basically untrue based on what he had been told by, uh, by Carl Rowe. Carl Rowe thinks that he was not, you know, that he answered honestly with, uh, with Scott McClellan and that uh, uh, he did apologize to Scott McClellan for what he had gone through, but he didn't apologize for what he had said, and Scott and Carl became, you know, quite estranged as a result. It was a real tension point inside, the, not just the White House, but inside the first circle of, of, of Texas advisors who had come with Bush from uh, from his uh, uh, his home in Austin. Yeah, you have this uh, moment at the end of 2004, the election, in which President Bush actually singles out Scott for being such a good and loyal soldier during the campaign. And one has the impression, looking back in history, of Karl Rove as this monolithic power, Bush's brain, and yet you really have a lot of people, both like Scott, uh, Dan Bartlett, Nicole Devinish, who were really trying to uh, figure out their way around Rove and and create a, a different voice in the West Wing. What did you find out both your time as a reporter at the time and then circling back with people like Nicole and Scott and Dan about how difficult it was in that summer? Well, uh, it, it was very difficult. And, and of course, uh, you know, the, the, the prosecutors were, were bearing down. People were uh, lawyered up. They were giving testimony. And they weren't allowed to talk to each other. You know, lawyers always tell clients in these situations, don't talk to your colleagues about it because it'll only be one more trip to the grand jury. What did you talk to Carl Rove about? What did you talk to Dan Bartlett about? So, you know, they were stuck in this position where there was great tension in the air and great uncertainty about where the prosecutors were training their focus, and they couldn't even talk to each other about it. They would head down the halls and see each other and not be able to, to, to say anything. So, you know, it, it, one person I talked to uh, who wasn't actually involved in the case, but but watched all this with his friends going through it. So it was the worst time in the entire administration as far as he was concerned. And then Peter Baker moving into the summer of 2005, it was like many other summers because President Bush spent so much time uh, at his ranch in Crawford, and I think you have plenty of stats about the number of times he was out of Washington and in Texas. And yet, I think a different picture of President Bush emerges as you write about the anguish that he felt uh, at his ranch with the protest going on just outside by Cindy Sheehan, who had lost a son in Iraq. And I want to, I want you to, uh, I want to hear the way he answered a question about it and take us inside the ranch and how this very human president was wrestling with this issue. You know, I grieve for every death. It breaks my heart to think about a family weeping over the loss of a loved one. I understand uh, the anguish that some feel about um, about the death that takes place. Um, I also have heard the voices of those saying, pull out now. And I thought about their cry and their sincere desire to you know, reduce the loss of life by pulling our troops out. I, I just strongly disagree. Yes, yeah, Steve. Just to make clear, your, your 
You're referring to Mrs. Sheehan here, I think. I'm referring to any grieving mother or father, no matter what their political views may be. You know, part of my duty as the president is to meet with those who've uh, lost a loved one. And so, I, you know, listen, I sympathize with Mrs. Sheehan. She feels strongly about her, uh, about her position. And, and I, she has every right in the world to say what she believes. This is America. She has a right to her position. Peter Baker, George Bush, like his father, sometimes struggled with being articulate and forthcoming with his emotions. But you draw a very interesting picture of how George W. Bush really wrestled with these issues, not just in 2005, but throughout his presidency. Yeah, I think he look, he did feel very strongly about this. He did meet with families like Cindy Sheehan and, and in private, without cameras there, without reporters there, and usually just one aide. And when you go, go back and talk to the people who were in the room, uh, years later, they all describe scenes that are pretty similar of, of, a, of a person who grieved with them, who, who hugged them and, and, and cried with them sometimes and, and, and did, you know, to use President Clinton's term, feel their pain. Uh, and he himself, you know, as the war got worse and worse, was, was uh, uh, increasingly, uh, I think, uh, tense over it and trying to figure out what to do. He, you know, he, he was clenching his jaw, he was clenching his teeth so much his jaw hurt. Uh, the aides would come out of meetings talking about how despondent they felt he seemed to them. One aide said uh, it was like he was telling us, please don't give me any more bad news today. Even when they got good news, they, 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 they killed Ayman al-Zakawi, the head of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, and aides tell him that they've gotten him, and he doesn't sort of react. And one of the aides says, well, what's, what's, what's the matter? He says, I don't even know how to take good news at this point. But he chose not to show that publicly. He chose not to let that affect his policy. You know, some people might look at all this, this tragedy and say, okay, I've got to get out of this war. This is bad. He looked at the other way around and said, I can't let these uh, boys and girls, uh, young people, men and women, die in vain. And he ultimately doubles down on the war. So we come then, Peter, to sort of the end of the summer of 2005, still at Crawford, although it's very much a working vacation because of Dan Bartlett trying to make it look like President Bush is hard at work, uh, even uh, while he's he's in Crawford. You have chapter 23. This is the end of the presidency. And it's a fascinating chapter because, like, when I worked in the White House and we sent President Clinton up to Portland, Maine, from Martha's Vineyard to, to make him look like he was working, uh, uh, President Bush goes out to California. He's being profiled by Martha Raddatz, and a massive uh, hurricane comes into New Orleans. Let's hear a little bit of the coverage of of uh, Katrina. Uh, again, I, I want to thank you all for, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA director is working 24 So, Peter, uh, Crawford vacation is interrupted for Katrina, and uh, uh, the FEMA director gets his, his moment in the sun. What happens at that point? Yeah, in fact, he had, I talked to Bob Riley. He was the governor of Alabama. He was with Bush right before that moment you just played, and he had told Bush, hey, your guy, Mike Brown, is doing a heck of a job. And, you know, to this day, he believes that was true, at least for Alabama. Obviously, a lot of people in New Orleans and, and Louisiana didn't believe that. But that's literally what he had just said to Bush before he goes out there and makes that comment. So Bush is literally repeating what he's just heard. Obviously, a badly uh, chosen phrase because it looks out of touch with what's happening in Louisiana and New Orleans where, where 
matters are still so 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 grave and so uh, out of control. So you know, uh, moments like these can become crystallized in any presidency. Um, uh, they become metaphors, right? Both good and bad. For Bush, the moment with the bullhorn after 9/11, the sort of spontaneous moment, the sort of one line thing he says becomes crystallized as a moment of of uh, defiance and courage and this moment with with mike brown and, and katrina becomes crystallized as a moment of being out of touch and ineffective at saving uh uh you know thousands of americans in trouble well uh, but peter i mean uh, katrina it's a it's a natural disaster it might be a perfect opportunity to call in your vice president dick cheney to manage the situation vice president ready to take that call no, he really didn't want to. He didn't think uh, uh, that was something where he would be best suited. He was asked, the president asked him to head a task force on reconstruction of New Orleans, and he declined. He decided it wasn't a task force that would have any real power, and therefore he didn't want to do something just for symbolism. Uh, he was asked to go down and do a fact-finding mission. He sent in a meeting, we'll find this president, I'll do it this, this one time, just this one time. Uh, he, he really, in effect, washed his hands, though. He didn't think that this was the best use of his his time and energy. He was focused so much on the national security aspect of things uh, that to him, uh, you know, this was off, off, uh, off topic. And meanwhile, uh, staff is struggling over the optics of this. You've got uh, Bush wanting to see closely uh, the damage in New Orleans and Alabama, Mississippi. You've got Carl Rove and Scott McClellan uh, arguing about whether Air Force One should do a low flyover. What happened there? Yeah, exactly. You know, look, he's coming back from Texas to Washington, and the choice, I was on the Air Force One with him that day. I mean, the choice was, you know, go back to Washington straight, uh, try to land in the uh, in the area or to do this flyover. And they chose the flyover because landing in the area seemed like it would be distracting to the rescuers and the people on the ground who were in the middle of very, very active uh, efforts to find and retrieve people, that, 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 that the infrastructure required for a, a presidential visit at Air Force One landing was was too great. Now, in hindsight, he has said he probably should have landed at Baton Rouge, which would be far enough away not to be disruptive, but at least put him on the ground and allow him to meet with people. But instead, he does the flyover about a thousand feet over the city. I looked out the windows just like he did, and you got a real sense of just how devastating it was. But the picture of him uh, staring out that window made him look detached and flying above it all. And there was an argument among staff whether this is a good idea. Uh, and the, the staff thought it was a bad idea, lost out. And, and you know, this is in the weeds here, but this is polyoptic, so we get in the weeds. And you have poor Scott McClellan. I mean, he'll go yeah. down as one of the, you know, most frustrated press secretaries in history, I think, saying, well, can you at least keep the photographers out of the front cabin? And then somehow the photographers make it to the front cabin to actually make the picture of Bush looking out the out the window. Yeah, it probably wouldn't have been so bad without the picture. Just, the, you know, the, the fact of the flyover might not have been as damaging politically. It's a photo that just... just symbolizes everything that uh, people feel frustrated about during this episode, and they and they blame him. And this is a bad thing for Bush, not just because of this one episode, but because it undercuts his broader uh, perception in the public of being effective or efficient or, or, or competent. And it's hard once you're a president uh, to get that back. Uh, and I think you're seeing that right now with President Obama and the health care. I think that's the danger is that, you know, if you, once you lose that sort of credibility, that reputation for being uh, effective at running government, um, it's hard to sort of uh, restore it. You paint a picture, Peter, of um, 
President Bush not being a guy who uh, often takes to television and watch news coverage, but there was a day, I think, in October when Patrick Fitzgerald filled the screen. I want to hear a little bit of that. The first occasion on which Mr. Uh, Libby discussed it with Judith Miller was back in June 23rd of 2003, just days after an article appeared online in the New Republic, which quoted some um, critical commentary uh, from Mr. Wilson. After that discussion with Judith Miller on June 23rd, 2003, Mr. Libby also discussed uh, Valerie Wilson on July 8th of 2003. And during that discussion, Mr. Libby talked about Mr. Wilson in a conversation that was on background as a senior administration official and when Mr. Libby talked about Wilson, he changed the attribution to a former Hill staffer. During that discussion, which was to be attributed to a former Hill staffer, Mr. Libby also discussed Wilson's wife, Valerie Wilson, working at the CIA. And then finally, again, on July 12th. So, Peter, we in the Clinton years had to deal with Ken Starr and our other independent uh -huh. prosecutors, and uh, in the Bush years had to deal with Patrick Fitzgerald. Obama has not yet uh, or had to deal with sort of the independent investigation other than sort of the work of Daryl Issa. But what sort of pall did Patrick Fitzgerald cast over the West Wing in the fall of 2005? Well, that was a huge pall. I mean, it was just... Uh... It was just a, uh, hanging over them the entire fall. They're going through, as you say, they go through Katrina. They're going through the terrible situation in Iraq. They're going through the, the implosion of the Harriet Myers Supreme Court nomination. And then they know that any day now there are going to be uh, uh, indictments or, or some sort of announcement from Patrick Fitzgerald about what he's going to do in this case. One day uh, they're sitting in the senior staff meeting the first day in the morning, and they notice the call was not there. And they begin to think, oh gosh, maybe that, that he knows something he's been told and he's been indicted. Uh, but it turns out that the person who was there in the room at that time was Scooter Libby. An aide comes in, hands him a note, he looks at it, he, can't, he gets up and hobbles out of the room on his crutches because he had hurt himself uh, recently. Uh, and that was the last he was seen of. It turns out he was the one who was indicted and he left the White House that day, never to return. And as one person put it in the room, said he could have heard a pin drop. And so, to finish this annus horribilis for George W. Bush and, and Dick Cheney, uh, there's, an, there's an incredible scene toward the end of the year, uh, Peter, of when your ultimate boss, uh, uh, Arthur Salzberger Jr., uh, comes into the Oval Office and is invited to sit down in the chair usually reserved for visiting heads of government and heads of state. Uh, they're there to discuss an impending story by uh, your, your, your colleagues uh, in the New York Times on a different beat. Uh, what's, and, and Salzberger makes this funny joke that I think goes over the president's head. What happens there? Well, that's right. Salzberger, of course, uh, uh, comes from a family that's owned the uh, Times for a while, and he, he is uh, uh, himself the son of... Uh, uh, another man named Arthur Salzberger who had uh, uh, been, uh, uh, you know, in charge of the newspaper. So he tries to sort of relate to Bush, who, of course, is also, you know, uh, the, the son of, right? And uh, he uh, he makes a joke saying, I know it's like to sit in your father's office. Uh, but Bush's face doesn't register any kind of reaction, and they're not really sure, you know, whether the, the joke went over his head or he just didn't really think it was very funny. And yet the, the issue there is very serious, which is basically uh, uh, the president was trying to get Bill Keller, I think, and Salzberger to hold uh, on, on uh, Lick Blau's story about warrantless wiretapping. I want to hear a little bit of Bush's radio address uh, the next day and, and 
talk to me about the drama of ripping up uh, the speech that he had planned to give. In the weeks following the terrorist attacks on our nation, I authorized the National Security Agency, consistent with U.S. law and the Constitution, to intercept the international communications of people with known leaks, links to al-Qaeda and related terrorist organizations. Before we intercept these communications, the government must have information that establishes a clear link to these terrorist networks. This is a highly classified program that is crucial to our national security. Its purpose is to detect and prevent terrorist attacks against the United States, our friends and allies. Yesterday, the existence of this secret program was revealed in media reports after being improperly provided to news organizations. As a result, our enemies have learned information they should not have. And the unauthorized disclosure of this effort damages our national security and puts our citizens at risk. Peter, the parallels between the way Bush handled that and the way this, uh, the Obama administration has handled Snowden and the NSA story this year? Well, it's very interesting, of course. I mean, the, the, the Snowden uh, the surveillance programs that Edward Snowden has revealed have their roots in this moment uh, in Bush's presidency. Uh, and President Obama, as a candidate, of course, had run against the Bush record, arguing he'd gone too far on some of this uh, uh, surveillance, but in fact, ultimately keeps uh, a lot of what he inherits and now is trying to answer for it. He's, he, he, like Bush, is upset about the leaks. He, like Bush, is defending uh, the programs necessary to national security. Uh, you know, the, the, the somewhat difference is that uh, Obama, I think, is a little bit more sensitive to the criticism because it's coming from his own party as much as it is the other party. And so he's trying these days to try to find ways of assuaging concerns with some uh, reexamination of, 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 the, of the surveillance. But he hasn't made any substantial changes uh, yet, and we, it's not clear what, if anything, he will do to uh, uh, pull back on some of the programs that have caused so much controversy. Uh, very end of the year, Peter, 2005, uh, so many things that happened in this year that was supposed to be a year for President George W. Bush to spend a little uh, of the political capital he had earned in the election. I think he spent it, and then some. He's sitting with his aide, Karl Rove, uh, making New Year's resolutions, and uh, what's their conversation at sort of the end of this very difficult year? Yeah, well, it's uh, it has been a tough year, and it's... Uh uh, you know, everything that could go wrong seemed like it did go wrong. Uh, and, you know, they're, uh, they're sitting there thinking about the, uh, what to do for the new year and they're talking about, uh, reading actually that, that, that Rove, uh, said he had hoped to actually devote more time to books, something he hadn't had any time for lately. And his goal, he told Bush was to read a book every week. Well, Bush sort of just, he can't let a competition like that go. Uh, and just three days later, he's in the Oval Office with Rove and says, I'm already on my second. Where are you? And uh, from that begins this sort of reading contest between the two of them. And essentially, the way their reading contest develops tells you something about the way they approach books and, and, and so many things. It's a metrics-based thing. It's not only how many books uh, did they read uh, by which they measured their contest. It's how many pages they read. And not even just how many pages they read, but how many square inches of type uh, on the page, so they, it's a very metrics-based uh, uh, look at, uh, at at books and reading and and contests. 
Peter, uh, moving forward, I think one of the books that uh, George W. Bush may be reading is Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House. He decided <laughs> not to uh, sit down with you to pr- lend his perspective on the eight years the way Vice President Cheney did and so many other aides. Have you gotten any feedback from Dallas? You wrote this very interesting piece, uh, Bush settling into Dallas, golf tees and family time, now Trump politics. But do you think he's been curling up with Days of Fire? <laughs> Well, I hope so, and I hope he regrets the fact that he didn't talk to me. I think that he thinks he should have uh, 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 devoted the time to it, but he decided not to. He thinks that, uh, you know, A, he's had what he's uh, had to say through his own memoir, Decision Point, uh, B, that you can't really judge his presidency um, until more time passes, and C, he complained he thought that a New York Times reporter couldn't be fair. Uh, I tried, of course, to persuade him that wasn't the case. I would show up at a lot of his uh, post-presidential events, so much so that one of them, in fact, he turned to me and, and said, Baker, are you stalking me? And I said, yeah, I'm waiting for my interview. And obviously it wasn't going to come. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure how much he's interested in replaying these things uh, at this point in his presidency, at this point in his life. I think that uh, uh, he, he did what he did. He's He more or less is comfortable uh, with that, he, he has uh, uh, a record to defend and uh, uh, explain and, 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 and boast about. So, he, I, I, you know, whether he cares about how uh, uh, any particular book portrays him, I'm not sure that, uh, that he does. I, I don't, uh, he hasn't uh, called me up lately to tell me anyway. The reviews have said pretty much uh, consistently that you have been very fair. Uh, what was it like to sort of sit down and try and put together 600 pages rehashing all these uh, these eight years in which you were such a front row witness? Well, you know, look, I mean, it's very hard to write a neutral account about two guys that nobody in this country really feels neutral about, right? They're very uh, well-known, controversial, even polarizing figures. Some people feel very strongly uh, for them. A lot of people feel very strongly against them. Uh, and, you know, the job of this book is not to tell people what to think. The job of this book, uh, as I saw it, was to tell them what happened and to give them uh, perspective and to, and to uh, draw a three-dimensional portrait of two uh, these two extraordinary figures caught in these uh, consequential times and in a relationship that was far more complicated and, and dynamic than we had known. And then readers can judge for themselves uh, and, and make up their own minds about what they thought happened and why and what was the uh, uh, outcome of them. You've had such a front-row seat, Peter, for Clinton, for Bush, and now Obama. And this week we saw Obama spend 40 minutes or so in the in the Brady briefing room before heading off to Cleveland has to be, in many measures, perhaps the low point of his presidency. You draw this similar picture of 2005 for Bush, and yet here you write a couple weeks ago of a, of a man very content with his life and his decisions in Dallas. But thinking of what you know of President Obama, what do you imagine him as a post-president when the time finally comes? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think uh, uh, a lot of people wonder whether he really enjoys uh, being president at this point. Uh, you could always tell that Clinton did. Uh, by the end, I think Bush was pretty pretty worn down and ready to go. He was, he, you know, he uh, he had a ceremony near the end where he's giving an award to Morgan Freeman, the actor, and he notes that Morgan Freeman had played a president in the movie Deep Impact and says that's, of course, the movie where the comet hits the, hits the world and, you know, destroy civilization and then Bush kind of ad-libs that's about the only thing that hasn't happened in the last eight years so I think he had, he had been pretty worn down by literally eight years of days of fire 
Uh, and I think that President Obama at this point is, is uh, you know, gone through a lot of hard times. He's, he's, got, a, he's got a long distance uh, uh, outlook on life. He tries not to, I think, get too carried away by any particular moment or any particular day that might be uh, difficult. But uh, he's had a lot of difficult days um, uh, stacked on top of each other lately. Peter Baker, author of Days of Fire, the White House correspondent for the New York Times, and uh, a, a, a repeat visitor here on Polyoptics. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Anytime. Take care. So as I told you at the top of the show, we are now going to switch from the 2000s to the 1980s and talk with James Hawes, the director of the Challenger Disaster, and Rocky Collins, the executive producer for the Science Channel. Welcome, gentlemen, to Polyoptics. Thank you for having us. Rocky, uh, why should the Science Channel be making its first movie tonight, uh, the Challenger Disaster, airing uh, on your local cable channels? I mean, you are where I go on Saturday mornings with my nine-year-old for how it's made, pumpkin chunkin' through the wormhole (laughs) with Morgan Freeman, Futurescape with Jimmy Woods. Why should I be spending my Saturday night with you watching your first dramatic movie? Um, well, we have a, as you just mentioned, that's a pretty wide variety of shows. Uh, Through the Wormhole is really pretty, uh, you know, it's no one's idea of light entertainment, I guess. It's, you know, uh, we always joke that if we haven't given our viewers a headache, we haven't succeeded. Um, a lot of that show is about quantum mechanics and all, you know, cutting edge uh, particle physics and a lot of pretty pretty complex stuff. Futurescape is kind of in that vein, although it's got, you know, a, a different attitude. So we we have a very um, inclusive and uh, universalist idea about science. And um, the, the world of science lovers out there is vast and extreme in a way, you know, my I, I like to watch Head Rush myself and old Mythbusters episodes with my eight-year-old daughter. And, um, you know, my uh, my older daughter is almost old enough for Through the Wormhole, and I showed her the uh, the Challenger disaster, and she was just riveted and went to study more about it. And uh, so I think it's a... I think it's a really good way to step into the the fiction realm with a very important um, historical event, truthfully told, with a science as, scientist as a hero. And James Haas, your filmography is very varied, but you have in it uh, your documentary on Lawrence of Arabia. You have your uh, your movie, The Chatterley Affair, and also Line of a S- Line in the Sand. So you're no uh, rookie when it comes to um, period pieces how did you how did you how were you attracted to going back to 1986 and bringing yourself to Washington to California and to Florida and Alabama well you're right I mean I have a background at the BBC in current affairs and documentaries and I guess when I made the transition to to scripted work to drama there was a logic and and something in my DNA that brought me to fact-based stories Um, the an early draft of the script was sent to me and this just felt like an incredibly compelling story to be part of telling it's uh, to have a story that is a strong dramatically and yet honest and true uh, just feels like a great combination Brits, um, yeah i mean brits don't quite have the the space travel built into the dna the way russians and americans do how did you get yourself into the mindset of what it must have been like to watch live as seven of our astronauts perished a minute into flight well, you're absolutely right. We don't have. We're not known for our space program, but um, you know, the Challenger is an iconic 
program worldwide. And I remember vividly the morning uh, of that disaster. I was I was an, an, a student at university at the time. And so it lives strong in the imaginations of many people way beyond the boundaries of the United States. So for both of you and for our listeners who for whom 1986 may not be as fresh uh, in their memories it is, as it is to uh, James Haas and Rocky Collins and myself, let's uh, revisit some of the stakes that were involved. It was a very unique flight, uh, January 1986, I think the 25th mission of the space shuttle since it started flying in 1981. And I want to hear from one of its important passengers. I would like to humanize the space age by giving a perspective from a non-astronaut because I think the students will look at that and say this is an ordinary person. This ordinary person is contributing to history and if they can make that connection then they're going to get excited about history, they're going to get excited about the future, they're going to get excited about space. James and Rocky, that's a Concord, New Hampshire school teacher named Krista McAuliffe, the teacher in space. Uh, how was she selected uh, by the United States, by President Reagan, and, and what was the uh, what was her role going to be on that flight? Uh, I think that there was a contest, if I remember correctly. There was a contest to select her from their uh, schools and school kids around the country were, you know, motivated, were brought in to get a part of the decision. And um, there were then there was a lot of testing and stuff. So she was chosen. And I think it was um, with, you know, obviously the, the best of intentions, and I would say noble intentions that we would all uh, applaud, which are to... Uh, to in, get kids interested in science, to get the country um, to to um, embrace the space program as something that is for everybody and not just for uh, you know not just for military purposes or for other uh, you know non civilian purposes. And I think that um, they you know unfortunately we know what happened is that they maybe jumped the gun a bit. Right. I mean, James, the the in the script, math plays a very important role and specifically percentages and odds. And I think whether it was some uh, companion material or in the movie itself, it suggested at one of the hearings that the teachers and the potential teachers in space were given the prospects that a safe shuttle flight was a uh, or a catastrophe in, in a shuttle flight was a one in 100,000 occurrences. How did that play into your script and the way you talked about it in the film? Uh, well, we brought it uh, through the voice of Richard Feynman, um, using him as our principal character and, and as he genuinely was in the presidential inquiry. Um, he was our access point, if you like, into the facts uh, and a way of delivering uh, both the the scientific detail and also the the detective narrative that unfolds through the movie. So let's go back to January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. Hearing a little bit of what so many people uh, in different parts of the country might have seen if they were just watching a morning talk show or something, and suddenly the anchors break in. Looks like a couple of the uh, solid rocket boosters uh, blew away from the side of the shuttle in an explosion. here looking very carefully at the situation obviously a major malfunction we have no downlink 
James and Rocky, what did you have to do to both uh, acquire archival footage and build sets that brought you back to a 1986 NASA and the commission and the work of the commission? Well, those are two big questions. I mean, we had uh, a specialist team of researchers at the BBC that did a lot of the archive uh, hunting. Uh, the clip you've just played is such a compelling one. There's something about that tone, that emptiness of that ringing sound that is haunting. And then there is the flat voice of the delivery. Again, you know, that, that isn't any actor. We use it in the film as it was then, saying, obviously, a major malfunction. I mean, one of the understatements of yeah. the century. Um and if you watch the visuals, there was there was a TV camera in launch control at the time. You see these numb, shocked faces of uh, of all the scientists and controllers there. Uh, there was utter disbelief. And I don't think there was anything the drama could do better than to use this authoritative archive to make it feel real. Um, in terms of the sets and bringing it alive, uh, part of the joy of my job is smoke and mirrors. We shot all of this in South Africa bar one day. So all those states you went through, whether it was Alabama, Florida, whether it was D.C. or California, we were actually in Johannesburg. And, uh, you know, I remember following the investigation closely, the, the, the footage or the scene that you shoot in a hangar in which all the uh, recovered pieces of Challenger are arrayed in where they might have been uh, on the uh, orbiter itself. Was that a true-to-life recreation? How did you do that? Yes, it was. In fact, there were, uh, I think, two, maybe three hangars that were used. And we took, I think, allowable dramatic license to conflate them into one to give a very visual representation of what the challenge, what the puzzle was facing the committee and, and Feynman at its heart. Um, we, we used a hangar as a location. We had our design department build some fragments of the shuttle exactly as they were based on some of the still images that we had in our research process. Uh, and we, we then supplemented them with a combination of, uh, in fact, fragments of shattered aircraft and, uh, and CG detail, creating it in the computer afterwards to multiply the components. Guys, again, going back to 1986, I want to hear some of the news anchors as they uh, weighed in after the Obviously, the, the range safety officers were looking carefully at the situation, and, and uh, it was clear that there was a major malfunction at, at mission control. The space shuttle Challenger has been plagued by delays these last few days. This is the one that was to take up seven uh, people, in the astronauts, including the school teacher who was put aboard as the first, actually, what we call strictly civilian person to be aboard a space shuttle. The space shuttle launch uh, had been delayed for several days. It was a hard freeze uh, in Florida overnight. No one is suggesting that that did or did not have anything to do with what happened to the space shuttle. Challenger, as you saw in that videotape we played, the launch seemed to go all right. But a minute and 12 seconds into the launch, something went wrong, and the report is that the vehicle exploded. We asked him whether this wouldn't uh, necessarily cast a pall over that speech, and he agreed it would, uh, because clearly he was going to give a speech which was upbeat. He intended to say the State of the Union is good, things are very good, we're going to go forward. And tonight uh, he can't really give that kind of speech without first talking about something that's happened that's uh, very bad. Gentlemen, you heard first Dan Rather in the live report of the day, January 28th, and then Sam Donaldson talking about, obviously, how plans were going to need to be remade around the State of the Union address. And we'll get to President Reagan in a second. But in terms of the press's role, I mean, in terms of your uh, film that airs tonight on Science Channel, The Challenger Disaster, 
the hero uh, and the focus so much is on Richard Feynman. And yet here you hear on day one, Dan Rather raising the specter of a freeze overnight. How did you deal with the tension of both creating a, a good story around Feynman with the fact that press was also working very hard to try and figure out the, the what happened here? That's a really good question. Uh, Richard Feynman, um, his role in this um in this uh, drama is not really a, a he's not a traditional detective he isn't uncovering a lot of stuff but he's uncovering it um he has to uncover uh, a lot of facts that are being hidden from him and then once he uncovers them he has to get everybody else to admit it so a lot of what he's trying to do is to create a version of the truth that is completely, uh, you know, that no one can argue with, that no one can deny. And it's, uh, so I think that makes it a, um, it's a unique sort of a detective story in that sense, because uh, it is not, as he himself said, it was not merely a technical scientific problem, it was a human problem. Uh, It was a a public relations problem, a uh, a cover your butt problem, it was uh, a lot of different types of problems. And he he was in a unique position and a you know you with a unique personality um and with his um uh decades of explaining the most complex science to um to everyone to you know generations of students that he was the you know just happened to be the perfect person at the right time to you know make make the whole under make the whole country understand the facts in a way that no one could pretend otherwise was um, was William Rogers, the former Secretary of State who served as the chairman of the Rogers Commission, as depicted by Brent, Brian Dennehy, was he as much of a crotchety obstructionist as you depict him in the film? Um, according to uh, uh, some people who were on the committee who we spoke to and interviewed, that is an accurate portrayal. I think also, as you'll, and I don't want to give away the ending of the film, but he does not, he he goes in with an attitude of, you know, let, of with one attitude, which he doesn't necessarily come out with. And I think he, he and uh, Richard Feynman come to an understanding by the end of the process. Um, so he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't remain uh, as crotchety. Let's go to uh, the evening of January 28th. This was President Reagan, uh, the speech that he gave instead of the State of the Union. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. James, and then he gives this uh, uh, incredible quote, we'll never forget the last day when they slipped the surly bonds of Earth and touched the face of God. And then the hard work gets underway to actually figure out the cause and preventing future disasters. Uh, how does Richard Feynman uh, find himself on the commission? Because he's certainly not uh, one of the representatives of the various organizations that had a stake in the shuttle. 
Uh, no, what happened was that an ex-student of his uh, had recently got a senior position at NASA, and he took it upon himself to invite Feynman, who was very reluctant um, to join the commission because he felt they needed an independent voice. He could read the runes, and he felt that there were so many vested interests uh, and that it was important for NASA, for the space program, for America, that there was a clear, uh, independent mind at the heart of that committee. I want to hear a little bit of Feynman earlier in his career because he's such an interesting character and have both of you talk about what it was like and to actually bring this uh, um, incredible American scientist to a dramatic depiction of, uh, through William Hurt's performance. That, they say, you are very unscientific. If you can't prove it impossible, then why, how can you say it's likely that it's unlikely? Well, that's the way that is scientific. It is scientific only to say what's more likely and less likely and not to be proving all the time possible and impossible. To define what I mean, I finally said to him, listen, I mean that from my knowledge of the world that I see around me, I think that it is much more likely that the reports of flying saucers are the result of the known irrational characteristics of terrestrial intelligence rather than the unknown rational efforts of extraterrestrial intelligence. <laughs> James and Rocky, uh, such a dynamic character, Richard Feynman, earlier in his career from that clip. William Hurt plays a Richard Feynman who was coming down tragically to the end of his life. Uh, what about th directing Hurt to play Feynman uh, and to sort of put this sort of end-of-life uh, tack on, on how he's dealing with his assignment in the commission? Well, I think one of the things that you come across as soon as an actor and a director work together to bring to life a known character, uh, from my point of view, and I know from Williams, was this is not going to be an impersonation. That, that's a different role, uh, and it doesn't come from a dramatic truth. So although Williams spent a lot of time um, looking at clips of Feynman, it wasn't about trying to do some sort of mimic of every tick and trait. Um, it was also important, and you put your finger on it, that this was Feynman very ill, with what was soon to turn out to be terminal cancers, two cancers, um, and involved in something as serious as this investigation and, and with the deaths of seven astronauts on his mind. So it wasn't quite the sort of more playful bongo playing uh, in front of his undergraduates sort of, sort of Feynman that we're more used to from his television portrayals. Nonetheless, it has that eccentricity, that sense of the maverick, and that wiry energy and intensity, which I think uh, William Hurt was perfect to play. And then uh, Hurt has this uh, amazing scene as Feynman toward the uh, end of the movie in which uh, he really does do, in many ways, a recreation of, of a very known scene. I want to hear uh, actually, Professor Feynman, as he testified, before, as he gave uh, an interesting um, soliloquy as a member of the commission. Well, I took the stuff that I got out of your seal and I put it in ice water. And I discovered that when you put some pressure on it for a while and then undo it, it maintains, it doesn't stretch back, it stays the same dimension. In other words, for a few seconds at least, and more seconds than that, there's no resilience in this particular material when it's at a temperature of 32 degrees. I believe that has some significance for our problem. James and Rocky, this is a pivotal moment. Talk about the journey that Richard Feynman, Professor Feynman, has from the moment that he gets called in California, he gets dragged to Washington, gets stymied in so many ways as a member of the commission, 
uh, does his own investigation, his trip down to uh, Huntsville, and then uh, and his relationship with um, the general as, as portrayed by Bruce Greenwood. Well, uh, I mean, you, you've summarized a lot of it there. It's, it's at first uh, a trip to Washington where he expects to be invited into the information and to the committee room to find that actually everybody's taking this in a very relaxed manner and they're dispatched away. And he feels like he's the clock is ticking on his own lifetime and he wants to get on with this investigation. So he is a frustrated man who, who doesn't sit back. So we follow a character that is front-footed, proactive. He gets out there. He goes to Huntsville. He goes to, to the factories where some of the components are built and begins trying to get to the seat of what might have, might have got wrong, gone wrong. Um, the, the key change that Rocky uh, uh, talked of earlier as well is the moment at which it becomes clear that they kind of know what went wrong, but nobody really wants to accept it. Uh, and it does become more Feynman the teacher finding a way to use his clarity of thought, his clarity of communication in such a way that the fog of a presidential commission cannot cloud the truth, that it will come out in a way that people will understand and have to accept and act upon. And that's where uh, crotchety Bill Rogers uh, realized that he needed Richard Feynman to help, uh, you know, make some of those, you know, to, to make obvious and state out loud some of those points that uh, some uh, NASA engineers were trying to keep um, keep secret. Did Rogers and Alton Keel know that uh, Feynman would take out the glass of ice water? No. 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 That was, uh, in fact, as we understand, the, the scriptwriter Kate Gartside based the vast majority of the scenes that you see played out in the various hearings on transcripts. And there are very tiny changes for what we think were legitimate clarity. But you know, he was preparing that, uh, uh, that experiment almost under the table during part of the other evidence giving. We, we gave it a little scene of its own. Um, but no, that was, that was produced in a moment, live on camera, so that there was no denying its simplicity and its message. Preparing the script and uh, portraying Dr. Feynman, was there connection with the Feynman family, the Feynman estate, uh, understanding that this would probably be, I guess this is the first time he's ever been depicted as a, as a, a movie character. Is that right? Um, I think there was one earlier attempt, which uh, will go unmentioned. It wasn't particularly successful. But, but um, yeah, two of his children and also the co-author of the book, Ralph Layton, were both um, his, two two his two children were uh, advisors on the film and credited. Um, they were supportive of the project, and, um, th and so was his co-author. Um, I just want to say, you know, so just kind of tying together a bunch of the the things that we've brought up is that um, he, Richard Feynman, is probably the best loved scientist of yeah. the twentieth century. And um, even though the um, the UK may not have its own space program, but I think Richard Feynman was equally as you know famous and well loved in the in the UK as he was here. There were four or five hours worth of BBC documentaries back in the eighties, um, with tre treasure trove of um, of uh, original interviews with him, which we actually um, uh, uh, we made a companion piece also with the BBC that'll air on Science Channel on Monday night. Um, which is more of a biography right. of him where you really get to see a lot of those and you and you just really see um, I mean this is a this is a Nobel Prize winning brilliant physicist who in the you know as in the clip that you mentioned that you played which I think is great where him talking about uh, UFOs 
This is a man who spent a lot of his life talking about what what is known, what is not known. How does science help us understand what is not known, what can never be known? And I think that that's um, you know that that's one of the reasons why we all wanted to do this show is to to show what it, what happens when you put some you know a Nobel Prize winning quantum physicist with that sort of emphasis on the the scientific process of truth finding and put him in in the middle of uh, you know Washington politics. It's an, it's a fascinating uh, culture clash. You know, as a young kid watching the first shuttle, the first 24 successful flights, and then watching uh, Challenger in 1986, and then understanding in very vague terms uh, what the commission was trying to do and understanding that there was this independent voice and this beloved physicist who had done so much to teach generations of American engineers. You, you shed light on another part of his career, his very early career, that I didn't know about until I rewatched uh, your movie, and that was brought up in this amazing scene between uh, Bruce Greenwood as General uh, Kutnya and uh, William Hurt as, as Richard Feynman in Kutnya's garage, in which uh, General Kutnya asks um, Dr. Feynman what he did during the war. And I don't have that clip, but uh, describe sort of what you, the way you depicted. Feynman's answer and whether sort of all of his educational work and then his service on this commission might in some way have been redemption for what he might have seen as his role during World War II. I mean, it was a compelling uh, uh, character beat for an actor, and it's something that he wrote about. I mean, uh, after Los Alamos and realizing uh, what his role might have been, as he says, he did the math. Um, he worked out how much material it was necessary to make uh, a viable bomb. He felt deeply depressed. He said, we got carried away by the science of it all. Um, we were young. It was a passion. Um, and he, he did have a serious depression afterwards. It was something that really colored the future of his life. Uh, and it was not something he talked about uh, at all and certainly comfortably. And I think it's quite telling that, uh, uh, again, it's Kate Gartside's script. And, and if I may, it's General Coutina. Um, Sorry, thank you. Not at all, but I know he's he's quite particular about it. Um, that it's uh, that little scene between, if you like, uh, the warrior Katina himself had flown combat missions in Vietnam and the man who'd been involved in the research of, of a hugely important, significant weapon in human history. And there's something about these two men talking about mechanics and, and boys' toys, and they connect uh, and he's able to just about speak to an uncomfortable truth. And there was a sense that he was doing something good this time round, and he could use science to the good for a broader mankind. Rocky, uh, James talked about how this movie was shot with the exception of one day in South Africa, uh, using uh, obviously the economics of, of that kind of a location and CGI. Uh, what was the budget that went into this film, and, and is Science Channel looking at other similar types of dramatic scripts that they can bring to life? The the budget will shall go unnamed, but it <laughs> wasn't much by, uh, you know, it was a lot for us, and, and uh, you know, we had a great partnership with the BBC. I think we, we each partner made it possible for the other because it's a beyond our... The usual, it's more expensive than our usual documentary, that's for sure. Uh, and yes, we are definitely looking at more dramas. We, um, we, uh, this has been a very, um, 
It hasn't aired yet. We're counting on um, on some validation when when we broadcast it. But so far, at least critically, it's been extremely well received. We're very very proud of it, and I, we think it's exactly the type of project that we want to do more of. Um, and and I think something that we can do also is we can do. Um, you know, a, we would probably always do a companion documentary as we're doing on Monday night because it's a, um, you know, in the companion documentary, we, we spend a good 15, 20 minutes on Los Alamos and getting more into his, what exactly he won the uh, the the Nobel Prize for and how does, you know, what's the, you know, you'll, if you've seen the, the movie and then you watch the, uh, the companion documentary, you will understand how, um, little senses and, and things that are kind of dropped in the, in the middle of the plot that all work in the plot, but you'll kind of understand the backstory for a lot of that. Guys, let's hear one more clip. It's Dr. Feynman after his service in the commission talking about how he was actually, uh, brought to that service. I have a policy practically of never going near Washington. And I called up various friends of mine who were connected to the space program one way or the other and tried to ask them if they didn't see whether I should go or somebody else could do it just as well. And they both told me, no, you ought to do it. I'm still trying to get out of it. I'm talking to my wife. And I asked her, and I have to be immodest here to explain the effect. She said, well, she said, I said somebody else could do it. She says, if you're not on the commission, there'll be 12 members in a little knot, which will go from one place to the other, figure it all out and write a report. If you are on this thing, there'll be 11 guys in a knot going around, looking in, writing a report. And one guy, like a mosquito running all over the place, and you probably won't find anything. But if there's something interesting, if there's something strange about it or something like that, you'll find it, and it wouldn't have been found otherwise. James Haas, Rocky Collins, that's Richard Feynman after uh, the commission did its work. In your view, having made this movie, doing all the research, and also recognizing the fact that there was one other uh, catastrophic disaster uh, facing the space shuttle program, that was Columbia, so the odds were decidedly worse than even one in 200. But did you come away thinking that the commission had succeeded in its job? I think the commission had had several jobs in a way, and I, I think that clip you played absolutely sums up the film, really. That's exactly what you see unfold from, from that moment on. Um, I mean, I think what the outcome of the commission was, and uh, I speak this as an outsider in a way, but was that it forced people to examine the fallibility of the space program. This was not something that was just going to work every time. There were changes to corporate law protecting whistleblowers. Um, there was a new scrutiny of the way that uh, NASA contracted with its partners and agreements to make launches went ahead so that the actual the management of a launch was 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 changed those were big things and obviously that's not all down to Feynman that was down to the team working out what the proper conclusions of that report process should be but I think all of those are significant Rocky yeah and Bill Graham who's the person uh, who brought Feynman onto the commission he um uh, he stayed on at NASA and, and may, helped make a, make changes. There were, you know, 
NASA is not a monolithic bad guy. You know, it's not a, and, you know, I think James and Kate did a great job of showing that there's a, um, it's made up of human beings who are all, uh, you know, like any political or, or bureaucratic entity, it's made up of a lot of different moving parts. And most of whom are, you know, basically all of them want to just do the right thing, get rockets up in space and keep and and keep making progress for the, you know, for science, for the country, for technology. And there's going to be different, you know, mistakes get made and different opinions about how to fix it. I think that one good, um, uh, one great example of how NASA changed is that the, um, uh, Alan McDonald, one of the one of the whistleblowers, was brought back to help redesign the O-rings. And Alan McDonald, I know, still is brought down. He still goes down to Huntsville and is brought in as a consultant every once in a while. So they um, NASA NASA embraced the whistleblowers and they embraced the results of the commission. And everybody, uh, I think that the next disaster that happened with the Challenger, or I'm sorry, with the Columbia, that I think they uh, um, dealt with it. Differently, The movie is The Challenger Disaster. It premieres tonight, Saturday, November 16th on the Science Channel, 9 p.m. on the East Coast. And we've been talking with James Haas, the director of The Challenger Disaster, Rocky Collins, executive producer for the Science Channel. Gentlemen, good luck with the film. Good luck with the documentary on Monday night on Dr. Feynman. Thank you for bringing this story back to uh, a new generation of people so interested in, in what happened and, and the way that Dr. Feynman approached this uh, unique challenge and investigation. Great film. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for your time. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. <laughs>